Very good morning. Nice to be with you again. Uh, when I get invited back to preach a second time, it either means I didn't do too bad last time, or it means I did so badly, you're going to give me a second chance. But either way, it's good to be with you. To everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to laugh and a time to weep. The title of my sermon is A Time to Weep. Would you turn please in your Bibles to Psalm 79. Psalm 79. Like Psalm 74 that was read for us earlier, this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the, the, the song leaders, the uh, hymn composers, the music leaders in David's time. So this is actually not Asaph himself who wrote it, but probably somebody who followed him in his school, in his school of music. And uh, what's interesting is that the, the sons of Asaph, or Asaph wrote... I think 12 psalms, and most of them are lament psalms. The lament psalm is a psalm, of course, of weeping. So Psalm 79. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for Food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us. And forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known amongst the nations in our sight vengeance. For the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us as we look at this psalm, which, Lord, if we truly unpack it well, is a very heavy 
hard song. I would ask your forgiveness, Father, because you convicted me very much this morning that what I'm about to preach, I do not practice nearly enough. I begin with that confession, Lord. But I then ask, Lord, that you would not remember my sins against me to the detriment of your word. Because your word is true, regardless of how well we practice it. And I would like to practice better, Father, and I would pray that my brothers and sisters here would practice well what we learn in this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think you'll agree with me that the church around the world is in a horrible mess. Now, you think about uh, Africa and South America, and the church is exploding in terms of numbers, but all sorts of weird, bizarre teachings and prosperity gospel. Uh, Europe, North America, the Christian church has been established there for millennia, and yet now we know churches are being turned into bars and places to stay, people to live in, or to have raves in. Church leaders have opened the doors to all sorts of, of aberrations, all sorts of worldly compromises. We hear of homosexual ordination, same-sex marriages, alternative lifestyle choices. We hear of so-called ministers who are giving up on any sort of supernatural understanding of miracles and who question the deity of Christ. And let's face it, friends, even within... Uh, Generally, orthodox Bible-believing churches, there's so much compromise. Worldliness creeps in, pornography poisons pulpit and pew, teen pregnancies, extramarital affairs, fleshly attitudes of greed. We could go on and on and on. The church is in a mess. And the challenge that I have for you this morning is how do we respond to all of this? What is our reaction to just this very quick scanning of what the church is like, but you can add many other things. And especially those of us who find ourselves in Bible-believing churches, I mean, one of the things I appreciate about this place is the Bible begins that it's always focused on the Bible, the gospel is central, the songs we sing are biblically based. So what about people in a church like this? What is our reaction? What is our response to the mess of the church? I think there's several responses we might have. The one is we sort of close the door, make sure none of those bad people get in here, because at least we're good Bible-believing Baptists, right? And we're Reformed as well. Look at that. Sort of hunker down. We're okay, and let's make sure we stay okay. Or maybe we pat ourselves on the back, and we nod at those crazy Pentecostals down the road, and we know better than them, don't we? Maybe that's another way we react. Maybe we stand with our Bibles in one hand, and our church doctrinal statement in the other hand, and our pockets jammed full of biblical messages preached by sound, spirit-filled men. Our bags are spilling out really good Christian books, and our, we lift our eyes to heaven, and carrying all of this stuff, we say, oh Lord, I praise you that I'm not like them down the road. That church, that group. We pray, we study, we listen, we obey. We believe in a literal creation, we conduct orderly services, we preach a sound gospel, our children are carefully taught and catechized, and we have a good Sunday school. We've got a clear statement about the gospel. How do we respond to a church in a mess? Here's my probing question, dear friends. Do we ever respond in tears?
do we ever respond by weeping? When we hear of prosperity preachers who make millions out of poor people, do we get angry or do we cry? When we hear about the homosexual revolution, the transsexual revolution flooding the church, does that make us cross or does it make us weep? I've yet to be in a church prayer meeting, and I've been in many of them, where the meeting just deteriorates into crying because we're so overcome by the terrible state of the church. The church is the living body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the precious, pure bride of the Lamb. And when she is in a mess, how do you and I respond? Do we ever weep for the church? And I would challenge you, not just to be known as a Reformed Baptist church, not only to be known as a Bible-believing, gospel-loving church. I challenge you to be known also as a weeping congregation and a crying church. Just with that background, let's have a look at Psalm 79, please. It's a lament psalm, a psalm of Asaph. I mentioned that earlier. The psalmist writes this song as a spectator of a very, very terrible scene. He's an eyewitness to a horrible devastation. He sees the destruction of the temple. He sees the devastation of the city of God. And he looks at the annihilation of the people of God. Destruction. Devastation, annihilation, desecration. Probably this is written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, 586 BC, around right about the time of Daniel and Ezekiel, time of Jeremiah, who would have been there in Jerusalem. Maybe the psalmist is a contemporary writer of Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah, you know he wrote two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations. And what is he lamenting about in Lamentations? He's lamenting about the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a strong similarity, and, and maybe, maybe this psalm writer in Jeremiah walked through the same rubble and picked their way over the same dead bodies. And maybe they both also wretched together because of the rotting flesh. And maybe they also stopped regularly and looked at one another with tears in their eyes because they saw this terrible, terrible destruction. Now have a look with me at the way that this uh, scene is described in verses 1 to 3. It's a scene of the aftermath of a terrible devastation. And if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, let me ask you, what are the words that sort of jump out at you in terms of trying to describe this scene? Verses 1, 2, and 3. What are the words that jump out in terms of describing this scene? Defiled. They've defiled your holy temple. Yep, good. Laid in ruins. Because not just laid, you know, you'd be laid a baby down. That's no, not. It's laid a city in ruins. What other words? Poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem. You know, this is a very, very horrific picture, dear friends. I'm going to try and describe it a little bit. It, it paints a picture of an, an invasion, a desecration, an annihilation. It's an invasion of the city of God. It's a desecration of the temple of God. And it's an annihilation 
of the people of God. If you look down at verse 1, the psalmist tells us that there are two different places that have been invaded. Number one, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. That refers to Jerusalem. Remember, God chose Jerusalem as his city. That's, that's a portion of the world that he claimed as his own. That inheritance, that dwelling of God, has been invaded. But the second place that's been invaded is the temple. Second line, they've defiled your holy temple. Remember, the temple was the place where God was to be worshipped. And if he was dwelling in Jerusalem, he was worshipped in the temple. If he was dwelling in Jerusalem, he could be met in the temple. That's where he would meet with human beings. And the temple has been defiled. And the city has been laid in ruins. Last line of verse 1. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And then the psalmist goes on to describe the annihilation of the people of God. And, and I, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of tease this description out to show you how horrible it is. All right? And I make no apology for the fact that it's not going to be pleasant. You see, the invading enemies of God have massacred the people of God. And what they've done is they've just left the dead bodies of those massacred people out in the open, and the crows and the vultures and other birds have settled on the bodies of the fallen people, and they began to pick out their rotting flesh and pluck out their eyes, and they began to tear away the flesh from the, from the severed limbs that were lying around. Not only the birds, but verse 2 tells us that the beasts of the flesh of the godly ones has been given to the beasts of the earth. So there's the jackals and the wild dogs and the rodents and predators. They come along and they're just tearing this flesh. And from what do we know of this situation, friends, this is not a battlefield. This is not two armies and, and these are the bodies of soldiers who died in battle. Oh, no, no. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. This is grandmothers lying with children. This is a nursing, nursing mother protecting with her dead body the dead body of her nursing child. There are limbs of children cut off lying next to armored soldiers. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And we know how horrible it was because the, verse 3 tells us they've poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem. So as you walk around that place, there's blood, blood, blood everywhere. And these invaders have not even had the decency to build a large fire and burn everybody because the end of verse 3 tells us there's no one to bury them. The bodies lie scattered over that city, scattered over that area, rotting, decaying, stinking. It's a disgusting, horrific, cruel, gruesome picture. And if we can use our imaginations, remember, Jerusalem stood upon a hill. And Jerusalem had really strong walls and towers and was almost impregnable. And the temple in Jerusalem was covered with gold and could be seen for miles around. All that it is now is a pile of ruins, stone upon stone. And those people, the people of God, the ones who said, our Jehovah is the one true God, they are lying dead, cut up into pieces, all over that city. Verse 4 tells us that Jerusalem and the people of God have become a reproach to our neighbors. They are a scoffing and a derision to those around. The ungodly, those who reject God, 
those whom the Israelites had said, our God is true and your God's an idol. Well, the idol worshippers are now mocking the God of Jerusalem. So much for him. So much for his people. They laugh, they deride. It is just terrible. You get the picture? How's it feel? It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Now notice a few things, dear friends. Notice, first of all, that the psalmist is telling God about this. He's addressing himself to God. He's telling God about the invasion, God about the destruction, God about the desecration, the devastation. He's describing to God, look God, do you see what's here? And of course he's not doing that for God's sake. Because God knows. He's doing that for his sake. This is what I'm seeing, God. It's terrible. What's interesting is when he speaks to God, he says to God, God, these are your things that have been so horribly treated. Just have a look through those first few verses. These are God's things that have been so horribly treated. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the fish of your godly ones to the beasts of the field. God, this is all, this is all your stuff. And not only that, but it's your reputation, Lord, that is at stake. People look at your city with your people and your temple, and it's just completely destroyed. It's your reputation that's at stake. So the psalmist is absolutely devastated by the end of verse 4. Now how in the world do we even begin to apply this psalm to us today? How do we begin to apply this psalm to us today? I'd like to suggest two ways. Number one, it helps us, this psalm helps us to identify with what the people of God have gone through in the past. You know, sometimes we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity and you know, the destruction by Assyria of the northern kingdom. And, you know, so it's all like we see on TV. You don't feel any of that stuff that you see on TV or in a movie, do you? And sometimes we need to enter into it. And that's what the psalmist is doing, helping, helping us to enter into this terrible suffering of the people. But I think that there's more, friends. I think that not only can we think about this historically, but also we can think about this presently. Now, I want to be very careful now in terms of where I go in the next two minutes. We've got to be very careful in connecting the church with Jerusalem or the church with Israel, all right? Because we don't want to sort of Christianize the Zionism. But you cannot separate the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God chooses to dwell in Jerusalem of old. In the New Testament, He dwells in the New Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, God is worshipped in the temple of God, the physical temple. In the New Testament, He is worshipped in the temple of God, which is the church. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the nation of God. In the New Testament, the church is called the nation of God, the people of God. And so there's these very clear similarities and identities between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. In the light of that, please listen carefully, when you and I truly take to heart the state of the church today, in so many places, and the church is God's dwelling place, the church is God's chosen worship place, the church is God's holy people, when we look at the church today, when we see what the enemy has done to the church, Surely we've got to feel something of what the psalmist felt 
in the Old Testament when he saw all of these things happening to Jerusalem, the temple, and, and the nation of Israel. Are you with me? And, and it's too easy to sort of divorce ourselves. I put to you, friends, if God would give us eyes to see the church in so many ways like the ruins of Jerusalem, I think you and I would start to weep. Because make no mistake, if, if you'd been there, if I'd been there, verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 79, and we'd walked around and we'd seen that situation, you know, sometimes we men are quite proud because we don't cry, right? Yeah, yeah, gentlemen, yeah. Real men don't cry. And Shona men don't cry. We'd have been weeping. We'd have been crying. And maybe you and I, when we look at the church today, ought to be weeping and crying. I know that there's lots of good signs within the church. I think your church is one of those signs. By God's grace, I hope that ours is as well. But you know, sometimes when you're in a good church, it's really tempting just to sort of sing some good songs, listen to some good sermons, make sure we're reading our Bibles, and forget about the rest of the church. I want you to imagine, uh, those of you who came in late, unfortunately you're not going to be able to do this, but for those of us who picked up that first description, I want you to imagine a group of, Je group of Jews who managed to escape, and they've got some meat to pry. And they're on the side of the hill, and Jerusalem is just over here. And what they do is they just turn their backs on the city, and they put meat on the pry so that the smell of the, the, the flesh sort of drowns out the smell of that flesh over there. And they sing songs. Doesn't sound very appropriate, does it? But could it be that that's what we often do? Sort of turn our backs on the mess of the church and... You know, we're okay. Too bad about that. But we must remember, of course, that we belong to them and they belong to us and we all belong to Christ. So the psalmist sees this terrible, terrible picture. We're in Psalm 79. Uh, friends at the back there, Psalm 79. He sees this terrible picture. And then notice what he does at the end of this description. Verse 5. He cries out to God, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And then he makes comments about two aspects of God's, um, God's nature or God's, God's response at the time. Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? I notice several things here, friends. Notice, first of all, he says, How long, O Lord, will your anger burn? Will your, sorry, will, your, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn? Who, who does the psalmist give responsibility for all of that destruction to? Don't answer yet. Does he say, Lord, how long are these Babylonians going to be so strong? And how long are they going to just want more and more land? And how long are their soldiers going to cut open pregnant women and pull the babies out? How long are they going to just destroy cities? How long is their nation going to expand? That's what we would expect, surely. Wouldn't you? I mean, it's the Babylonians who did that. Are you with me? The Babylonians did that. Surely it's not. How long are you going to let the Babylonians just become bigger and bigger and bigger? But he doesn't say how long will the Babylonians. He says, how long will you? How long will you? 
He is saying, hold your seats, friends. He is saying, God, all of this happened because of you. You get it? That's why you got to hold your seats. All of this happened because of you. He speaks about God's anger and he speaks about God's jealousy. Anger and his jealousy. I'm going to ask two questions and maybe think about them and maybe I'll ask for some answers and then suggest my answer. When is God angry with his people? And when is God jealous about his people? Okay? And I think there's two different answers there. When is God angry with his people? That's probably the easier one. It's quite easy, actually. When they, short word, here's an S, ends an N. <laughs> when they sin. God is angry with us when we sin. When is he jealous? When is he jealous? Slightly different. When we're unfaithful, I like it. Say again. When we're idolatrous, when we're unfaithful in serving idols. And just think about those two things, dear friends, and think about the church, right? When, when people sin, when God's people sin, he's angry. And when God's people follow idols, he's jealous. And an actual fact, and, and I hope you know the story of the Old Testament, this sin and this idolatry of Israel got to such a stage that God allowed his own temple to be completely destroyed because he was so angry and he was so jealous. You get it? So, so help me. What are some of the sins in the church today? What are some of the sins? And maybe don't, you know, don't have that murder, child molesting. Let's, let's just have some of the sins that, you know, they're just there. Sorry? Materialism. God. Gee, this phone, it's about a year and a half old. It's got a cracked screen. I could fix the screen or get a new phone. Yeah, materialism. What else? Sensuality. sensuality. Yeah, sensuality. Men and women. Sensuality. Sexuality. Sexual perversion. I mentioned pornography earlier. Any other sense? Drunkenness. Drunkenness. Yeah, drunkenness. We have a church plant uh, in Chivi, and one of the big things that the men struggle to do when they get saved is to stop drunkenness because it's just so much a part of it's what we do, right? What else? These are all fairly bad stuff. Cohabiting. Yeah, that's also fairly bad. Idolatry. I'm going to come to that in a moment, right? But what about just, you know, um, gossiping, jealousy, lateness, <laughs> wives forgetting to submit to husbands, husbands not loving wives the way they ought to. For me, impatience. How many of you are on the roads and you just feel like, <clears throat> all right? That's all in the church. It's all in the church. And you know, the big things we, the big things we say, well, those are so bad. What about the little things? And I think, I say it carefully, but I think the Lord has many reasons to be angry with the church in Zimbabwe at the moment. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the professing church of Christ. They may not all be Christians, but it's any church, any group that says, I'm a Christian church. And they take the name of God. I think God has got a lot of reason to be angry. 
What about idolatry? What are some of the idols in the church? Like Right. Very good. So, refashioning the image of God in our minds so that whatever we fashion is quite a nice type of God. Right? Thank you. What are some of the other idols? Remember, an idol is anything you trust or you value more than God. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Money for gentlemen, money for what do we spend money on? Money for meat, for a bride, but no money for Bibles for a church plant. Ladies. Money for hairdo? No money for Sunday school material, for example. So I think money. Any other idols? I'll come to you, Tina, hold a second. Laura? Conferences. Oh, comfort, sorry, but conferences, they can be idolatrous. Comfort, you know, I, I like my ease. I like the Lord convicted me so much this morning. You know, I love my Sunday afternoons just in my garden and reading and drinking tea. Don't bother me with your problems on Sunday afternoon because I'm comfortable. Idolatry. Do you know? Amen. Amen. You know, I follow this person. Do you follow this person? Hey, did you pick up so-and-so and what they said? You know, praise God for good preachers. Hey, Joe. Praise God for good Bible teachers. But if anyone then becomes an idol, God is jealous. The idolatry of success, personal success, the idolatry of the praise of human beings, the idolatry of self-centeredness and unwillingness to sacrifice time, energy meant for God, giving so much to our work because we want promotion and a bigger salary. I wonder how many of us know of people who turned down a promotion because it would mean having to work some Sundays or be away from their families in the evening. Not many of those around, but I can tell you a lot of people who accepted the promotion and those two things happened. You know, is there reason for God to be angry with the church today? Is there reason for God to be jealous towards the church? I think, dear friends, there is. And so I think verse 5 is very, very relevant. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? You know, we sometimes think that um, the sinfulness and the idolatry of the church is going to result in God's judgment, right? You get that? I've been thinking, maybe the sinfulness in the church and the idolatry in the church is God's judgment. You with me? Because what was God's judgment? Yeah. He just said to the Babylonians, come on in, desecrate my temple, come on in, destroy my city, come on in, kill my people. And I wonder whether what's happening in the church today in terms of the sinfulness of the church and the idolatry of the church is not going to result in God's punishment, but it is actually God's punishment. Because this church is full of sin and full of idols. And dear friends, I must ask this, please. 
What about you? Very easy to listen to a sermon for that church over there, isn't it? Isn't that right? Very easy to listen to a sermon for the person sitting next to you. You guys are accepted, of course, sitting together like that. But it's very, very easy to listen to a sermon for somebody else. You know, I hope they're listening, because that's very true of them. But what about yourself? I mean, honestly, in terms of the health of the church, in terms of purity of the church, in terms of the faithful worship of God in the church, in terms of obedience, how long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And we don't have time to look at the rest of the psalm in detail. I want to point out a couple of things. The psalmist does the only thing he can do. And what he does is he asks God to step in and help. He asks God to step in and help. And, and as he does so, he asks God to deal with two different groups of people. Right? And, and he asks God, first of all, to act in a certain way towards his own faithful people. That little remnant. The few survivors, the stragglers. And he asks God to act in kindness and mercy and compassion. Have a look at verse 8. Obviously everybody hadn't been killed. Because the psalmist is able to say, Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. It's a cry for mercy. Don't remember the sins of our fathers. We know they are true, but please... Don't hold those against us. Be kind and compassionate. And notice that the, the psalmist never excuses the sinfulness of the people of God. And the psalmist never says to God, how in the world could you do this? He never accuses God. He never excuses the sin. He simply cries out to God for mercy and for grace. He speaks to God about his people. End of verse 8. We have been brought very low. Drop down to verse 11. Let the groaning of the prisoner. Now the prisoner there is not, you know, like the normal prisoner in our, in our cells here in Harare. This is the prisoner who has been saved from the destruction of Jerusalem. But now they're being taken back into exile to Babylon. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. Can you name any human beings who are really glad that the psalmist prayed that prayer? You can. You just may not know that you can. Lord, please look after the survivors. There's a few of them who the Babylonians haven't killed. Please protect them. People like us. Daniel and his friends and Ezekiel and Ezra and a whole bunch of the Jews who returned later on. Say, so Lord, your city has been destroyed and there's, there's almost nobody left. But those who are left, Lord, please look after them. So, Lord, first of all, look after the remnant. But secondly, Lord, deal with your enemies. Verses 6 and 7. Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. To pray against the enemies of God and the destruction they've done amongst his people. And you know, we don't have we don't have Babylonians running around killing people in churches. But we do have the enemy of God infiltrating. Lord, please deal with the enemy. Deal with the enemy. Well, Islam's coming. Look at verse 12. 
Return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which we have been reproached. Which, excuse me, the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Lord, please deal with your enemies. Now just as we close, as we close, notice the basis of the psalmist's appeal. So remember there's a twofold appeal. Number one, look after the remnant. Look after your people. Number two, judge your enemies. What is the basis of his appeal? Can anybody find it? What is the basis of his appeal? He's already said, you know, let your compassion come. So it's, it's, it's definitely coming from grace. But he actually mentions specifically something. Do this because of this. Thank you very much. Verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Lord, please do this for the honor of your name. Verse 10. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let it be known among the nations, in our sight, vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. People mocked and said, where is their God? Verse 10, why should the nation say, where is their God? You know, friends, when you look at the church in such a mess today, Whose reputation is at stake? It's God's reputation that's at stake. And to what extent are you and I so concerned about God's reputation that if we need to, we will weep. We will weep and we will cry because of the state of the church. God is laughed at when there is immorality in the church. God is mocked when Christians compromise on truth. God is the one who is ridiculed when all sorts of bizarre things happen supposedly in his name. But God is also so dishonored when you and I get angry and gossip and grumble and complain and don't treat our wives right or our husbands or our children, etc., etc., etc. It's God's reputation, dear friends. And so as we survey the terrible state of the professing church in the world, but in our country, more than anything else, this must be our driving motive, God's glory and the honor of his name. Dear friends, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to laugh and a time to weep. And it may be that this is a time not to laugh, but to weep because of the church. So why don't we pray? And maybe after a few minutes, would you lead us in a prayer together? Would you do that?
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken so loudly, so vividly from your word to your servants. The time to Thank you so much. The Lord be with you.